that you sent your son. We've been reminded of that as we've sang today. We are so grateful for his atoning work on our behalf. He was our substitute. He's our propitiation to satisfy your wrath, God. And now you are completely satisfied with us. And you welcome us into your eternal life, Lord, with you through the work of the Son. We thank you for the Spirit of God who illuminates the truth of God's word into our hearts, Lord. Without the work of the Spirit, we would not know you. We have not, would not have come to faith and have repentance, Lord. We would not have known those things. And so we thank you for the Spirit. We thank you for your unending love. It does not waver. It is not like our love that grows cold and hot at times, Lord. But it is unending. And you give us a sustaining grace through that love. You're strong, Lord. When we're often weak, we thank you that you are strong, God. You are not a weak God like the gods of the world. You are a God that is strong. You're a pillar. You're our foundation. We run to you, Lord. And we find strength. We thank you that you forgive. And you forgive based on your son's work, not on ours. We can never bring enough offerings. We can never say enough prayers. We can never walk enough aisles to gain your forgiveness. We need it done through your son, Lord. Thank you for that mercy. Thank you for the cross work that it's finished. We do not add to it, Lord. We thank you, Father, for pursuing us. We are a blessed people that you chose and came after us, Lord. In our own, left to ourselves, we would have never followed you. Our minds and hearts were corrupted by sin. Our will was destroyed in the garden. You came after us, God. You pursued us. You drew us to yourself through the work of your Son, and we give you praise for that. We thank you for that this morning. We thank you for the faith you granted us to bring us to repentance, Lord. We would turn from our sins. And thank you that you are always with us. You have not left us. You will not leave us. You will always be with us. Even to the end of the age, you remind us. Lord, we thank you for the church. What a beautiful thing this is, Lord. Who could have thought of this? That you would design and call out among the world, from the world, a group of people that you would call your bride. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ, the one that is adorned to you, Lord. Who loves you and submits to you. Walks with you, Lord. And you hold us and, and carry us along, Lord. What a beautiful thing the church is, Lord. Thank you for creating and fulfilling the church, Lord. Thank you for each member that makes it up, Lord. We are many members, but one body. You've gifted us all uniquely, Lord. And Father, if we don't exercise our gift, our, the body is handicapped in some way. And so thank you for the gifts you've given, Lord. And may each and every person serve in the way that you've given them. It brings great worship to you. Lord, I thank you for the fellowship of the saints. You did not just put us in a club. You put us in a fellowship. People where we come from different walks and different backgrounds, and yet we enjoy each other. We love to be with each other. We worship and give and serve and, and listen and speak, and all of this together brings us fellowship of your children what father, Lord, would not want to see their children enjoy one another? 
Thank you for granting us fellowship, Lord. Thank you for the provisions you give to the church. Pay our bills and salaries and all that it takes to make this operate here, Lord. You are constantly showing your kindness through your children. Lord, most of all, we thank you for the gospel. Lord, and now as we turn to your word, may be the gospel that draws us to you even more. The remembrance of the word and sufficiency and all that it holds, the truth that we hold so dearly, Lord, remind us of these things. And cause us to love you more than when we walked in these doors. And then we'll love you more when we walk out. Lord, may we serve you now through the teaching and preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen. I used to dream in my youth of what heaven was like. I don't know if any of you all did this. I dreamt, I loved, when I was a young, young man, I loved to hunt and fish and run around in the wilderness. It was just a great joy for me. And I used to dream that heaven might be like that. Be this perfect hunting grounds and trails and endless game to track and to enjoy them. And, and maybe you, maybe you, how would you think of heaven maybe before you started really studying the scriptures? Uh, uh, maybe it was uh, a healthy living or sports of some sort. We, we often create a view of heaven through our view of earth. And see, that's a problem because we struggle with our humanness. And, and what happens is we, it, it causes us not to realize the vastness, the, the magnitude of God. And so our minds and hearts, we can get entrapped by this world. And, and so we struggle to see heaven the way God is presenting it to us. I think earthly minds and hearts struggle to consider the answers found in heaven. Perhaps at the heart of eternal existence is a being so infinite, so glorious, that we'll never tire of him. I think that's true. I know that's true. We'll never tire to be in his presence. And what if heaven is about meeting, listen to this, the source and the satisfaction of our deepest longings, that's, that's well beyond earthly thinking there, isn't it? Heaven's not just a version of what we have already or what we know and what we understand. It is much more beyond that. I don't think we know enough about the immensity of God. That's why we study him. That's why we study the triune God. We want to know the depth of his holiness. We want to know why angels cry out incessantly, holy, holy, holy is God. We want to understand that. Why do they do that? We don't understand that, do we? We're trying to pay bills tomorrow. Right? We don't understand his transcendence. transcendence. We don't understand how large and grandiose God is his greatness and goodness is such, the Bible says, such in one day as worth a thousand days, Psalms 84. Just one day with the Lord is, is like a thousand days, the Bible says. Think about the angels. We'll look at these guys in this text. Angels shudder at his size. Heavenly beings bound, bow down before him. Multitudes cry out of his worthiness. In heaven, all his glory 
will be near to us in, in absolute love and awe. In fact, the Bible paints a picture of a place that isn't just good, it is infinitely glorious, and we cannot get our minds around that, can we? I think there's two sides of this coin. A God this big will, by necessity, irritate our own wills, won't it? A God of such infinite, glorious personhood is someone who would have to say who is in heaven, who is allowed in heaven, and how people live. I think a God that big has the right to do those things. But a God of this size also gives us eternity that will never leave us desiring anything else. You know that? You never desire anything else when you get to heaven. Here we desire a lot of things, don't we? Even when we know we're going. There's always more to see, more to experience of God, more to appreciate, more to discover, and certainly more to worship this infinite good God. Because he's not just left eternity to ourselves and our own desires, but because he's rescued us from our sins, he's rescued us, think about this, he's rescued you from ourselves, and he's rescued us to him. And that's where we go astray when we start thinking about heaven and what's to come is because we think we're rescued for something for us. We're rescued for him and all the glory that comes. We know he did this by forgiving us and adopting us as his children through Christ's finished work on the cross. The Bible says we receive this full inheritance. We're, We're joint heirs with the Lord Jesus Christ. I have wrestled with that text forever and still can't get my mind around it. I don't deserve it. Do you? Do you deserve a seat at the table? Do you deserve to have a full inheritance shared with the Lord Jesus Christ? See, we say no. But God says yes, and there within is our eternal security. It was secured at cross, at the cross. It was, it was secured, listen to this, at Golgotha, the place of the skull. That's where it was secured. Right there, Christ finished everything that needed to be done for you and I to step into it heaven and enjoy it forever. Isn't that amazing? And yet, we often look to our good behavior And it just distorts the view of heaven. Well, this morning, this is a text that talks about heaven, but it's not the context of the text. We'll learn a little bit about heaven, but there are people here in this text, and and this is what makes me shudder a little bit, is there's people in this text that might never enjoy Christ forever because of their pride and arrogance and that's really what the text is about it's about men who reject the word of God who who reject the power of God for their own thoughts their own theological minds of things that they want to believe and they may find themselves outside of the kingdom of God so as we look at the text there's a few things I really want to drive home today 
It's about this third attempt. We've seen one already. We've seen uh, a group from the Sanhedrin come in chapter 11. Then we saw the Pharisees and the Herodians come and try to, try to uh, flatter Jesus Christ and try to trick him. Now there's a group called the Sadducees. And they're going to come and their goal is to trap Jesus as well. So we're going to see what pride does. Pride rejects the word of God. It, it, it rejects the word, both living and written. That's what pride does. We have to be careful of it. It's, it's our greatest sin, isn't it? It is, it is one that plagues us. Pride is a, a very difficult. And you're going to see how this will separate you from God. It often does so many. We'll see that pride leads to an illogical scenario. Totally illogical scenario. In order to reject Jesus. We'll see where pride gives birth to deception and ultimately rejects God for his power that he alone has. Then we'll see that the word is sufficient. It is our living hope. And then we'll take a peek into eternity at the end and see what this text will just give us a little bit of a glimpse of what we can't get our mind around here on this earth. First thought, there is no greater form of pride than to reject the word. There's no greater form of pride than to reject the word. Well, I'm playing on words here, aren't I? Jesus Christ is the living word. The Bible said in the beginning was the word. The word was with God and the word was God. And the word is standing in front of these men right now. They absolutely reject him. Now Jesus is gonna prove not only do you reject me, but you reject God's written word. He's gonna take them through it systematically and show them that they reject those things. And so there's no greater form of pride than to reject the word. And pride's a difficult thing, isn't it? Proverbs 16, 18 tells us that pride goes before destruction. Literally, the Hebrew says, pride then fall. That's what it says. It scares me, doesn't it? Does it scare you? The Bible says, pride then fall. That's what happens. When pride is not checked, when we don't bow our hearts to the Lord, do we not, when, when we don't say, oh God, I, I want to learn to walk in your ways, teach me your ways, versus this is what I want. Fall's coming. Fall's coming. And we'll see that in this text. Earlier in Proverbs, Proverbs 8, 13, God's word says this, the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. And then he says this, pride and arrogance in the evil way, in the perverted mouth. Here's what God says. These words are very strong. I hate. Ooh. Hate's a strong word today, isn't it? People get all crazy about it, don't they? God uses the word hate quite a few times, always in relation towards sin. And so here comes these men, and all the synoptics, as you study all of them, place this story as the third attempt to trap Jesus Christ. Their goal is to discredit him. The Pharisees and Herodians, they've chose flatter, uh, flattery. They were, they were there to try to trap Jesus. But this time, this group's coming from um, a prideful select group of Sadducees. And they are now the next ones up. Look at verse 18 with me. Some Sadducees, and then the Bible says this, who say there is no resurrection came to see Jesus and began to question him. This is the only time in the book of Mark where Mark refers to the Sadducees. They're not referred to in his recording at all. 
members of the Sanhedrin and the Pharisees and Herodians have just been humiliated. And now the Sadducees are up. It's their turn. And notice the verbs that are in this, how they approach the Lord Jesus Christ. The Sadducees, who, do not, who say there is no resurrection, know this word, came to Jesus and began to question. This is a, this is a strong, strong words. These verbs show they approach Christ with great confidence. And the word's better than confidence, great arrogance. They're approaching Christ with arrogance. They're demanding him to answer their question. See, the Sadducees were um, a religious upper class of the nation of Israel. They were composed of um, old, older high priests that had already served and present-day high priests in leading families, and not just any families, but they were the rich and powerful and, and arrogant and, and even harsh families of the Jews. They, they were few in number. And that was done for a reason. They would not let people inside that circle. It was, a, it was a prestigious position. And you just wouldn't let anybody in it. Children who were chosen for other children, for their children to marry. They did not want to let this power get outside whom they have chosen. Their popularity never reached what the Pharisees was. And they stayed around Jerusalem. They were really not known outside of Palestine. And then after the destruction of the temple of, in 70 AD, we never really hear from them again. But notice what Mark does. Mark records that the Sadducees did not believe in the resurrection. That's why they're sad, you see, right? And that is sad, isn't it? I mean, think about that. One of the greatest things God does is given us hope for the future that this world and all of its troubles and all the things that you and I go through on this world will come to an end and God will resurrect us, give us new bodies, we will be like him. That is a wonderful gift to you and I. Without it, I think you're a very sad person. And you can only have that hope if your hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ who they're going to reject. No wonder they're sad, you see. Now, Mark's comments tell us that they were known for expressing their opinion on the resurrection. That little parenthesis that you have there, brackets in your Bible, is Mark saying they're known for this. They claimed only to accept the written scriptures, this was their statement, and they were the guardians of the authority of the scriptures. They rejected the Pharisees' oral traditions, all those traditions, each tradition for a day of a week. They rejected all that. And this put them at great odds. The Sadducees and Pharisees hated each other, but they hated Christ more, and that's why they're here. Now, the Sadducees believe that the Pentateuch, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Pentateuch, Penta, Hebrew word for five, The Pentateuch did not teach the resurrection. The Pharisees did believe the Pentateuch taught the resurrection, and so these guys were always quarreling at each other. And it's interesting, I don't have time to take you here this morning, but in Acts chapter 23, I alluded to this last week, Paul is before these religious leaders, and they got him in a trial before they take him in front of um, other rulers that are to come. And 
they're really working. They're grinding on Paul. So Paul throws out a verse. It, it's read this way. He says, For the Sadducees say that there is no resurrection, nor angels, nor a spirit, but the Pharisees acknowledge them all. And that started a war between them. <laughs> he, he did that on purpose. They were attacking him. They were attacking his credibility, who he was, what he said, and what he didn't say. And so he throws that in. And what, that verse is very important because it shows us that it was well known. They did not believe in the resurrection, and they did not believe in the angelic beings that God created. And so there's great hatred and, and dis, distortion of the truth on both these sides, and they don't get along. Now, if you notice the line of questioning of every group that comes to Jesus, whether it's this group from the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees and Herodians, or here the Sadducees, every group is coming with their particular bent on their theology. Who gave you the authority to do this, the first group says. We are the authority. We believe God's handed us the authority. We'll tell you what to believe and what you can read and what you don't. Right? That's the, the group from the Sanhedrin. The second group comes and says, well, wait a minute. Should we be paying Caesar taxes, especially this poll tax on us. Got his image stamped on there. How dare we have an image of some man who thinks he's a god. So there's their theological view. And now here comes the Sadducee with their theological view that there is no resurrection. Each one is coming with their particular emphasis on theology, but trying to discredit the Lord Jesus Christ. Now notice the last part of, seven, of 18. And they began questioning him. So they're going to question him. Here's the goal. Discredit Christ and show that we're right about the resurrection and the Pharisees are wrong. So this whole thing is set up bad, right? And you'll notice that the Sadducees question, the question doesn't come till verse 23. And so all that proceeds is this rhetorical preparation for the question in verses 20 through 22. They're setting up this thing. They're actually going to depart from Scripture in order to set up this question that they think they can trap him in. And in verse 19, they lay down the scriptural reference of what they're going to use, right? And then the narrative's in the next few verses. Now, we must understand, because they reject the resurrection and had constantly argued with the Pharisees, they believe it was impossible for Jesus to answer this question. They think they got him. If we, if we can't solve this between the great Pharisees and the Sadducees, oh, we got this guy nailed. Pride and arrogance, isn't it? And they don't think Jesus can defend himself. Look at verse 19. Teacher. We'll stop right there. Isn't that interesting? I don't think it's out of the ordinary. I think this is a formal address just to one who has, a, has acknowledged his giftedness but I think what's unique is here is the Sadducees are not here to flatter them. They're not here to learn from Jesus. These are arrogant, prideful men. They themselves see themselves superior to Christ. And their goal is to expose his inadequate theology. That's their goal. So the people will turn on him and say, oh, he's not the Messiah. And so there's, there's no flattery here. There's just full-on pride here because they want to discredit him in front of the people and demonstrate their superiority. But their pride is going to be their destruction, right? Pride, then fall. 
That's what's going to happen in this text. Pride, then fall. Not only will we see the Sadducees mishandle God's word, but they will, and this is the saddest thing, and we see this, people mishandle the word, and then they reject Jesus Christ for fully who he is. Happens every day. And that's what these men are going to do. So there's no greater form of pride than to reject the word. Second thought, pride rejects the word and leads to illogical scenarios. Pride rejects the word and leads to illogical scenarios. Many times, pastors will meet with somebody who are living in sin, who are caught up in their own pride, and they want to do things their way. And they begin to give you scenarios that are like, well, is this you, or are you just making this up? Or They come up with wild, crazy ideas, trying to prove their point that it's okay to do what they want to do. And that's what these men here are doing. Notice verse 19. Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves behind a wife and leaves no child, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now, here the Sadducees are loosely referring to Deuteronomy chapter 25, 5, and 6. This is a law, one of the parts of the law. They attempt to use God's word but they fail to realize who they're standing in front of. (laughs) He knows that word perfectly. He knows every meaning of it, every jot and tittle of it, and he is there to fulfill it. So they don't know who they're dealing with. Now, the meaning of the passage in Deuteronomy was to raise up a seed from a deceased brother. The the clear intention of the Mosaic law was to keep the family line from dying out so that the family inheritance would not be broken up if the firstborn son dies. That was the key. It's a very gracious act of God. The next son in line would now be registered as the firstborn. If the firstborn son dies, the next one would now be registered firstborn. And this was particularly important as the nation of Israel in Deuteronomy was just about ready to go in the land and God was going to give them land for all the different tribes. And within that tribe, each family would get a portion of land to farm, to live on, and to create a living for, right? So what God is doing in Deuteronomy chapter 25 is securing their family's inheritance. Now, unfortunately, Israel rejected God and fell into captivity. And as we study this law, um, there's very little evidence that they ever kept this law after their Babylonian captivity. But what we're going to see here from scriptures is a ridiculous and an extremely unrealistic question pertaining to the law of the firstborn. But again, don't miss the gracious act of God to protect the rights of these people. So they take something that God did graciously for that family and they're gonna do this illogical scenario here. Look with me at verse 20 through 23. This is where they depart from the scriptures, right? So verse 19, they are somewhat quoting the scriptures out of Deuteronomy, they're referring to it. Verse 20, they depart. There were seven brothers. Uh, I just want to get this is some guys sitting around trying to stump the Pharisees coming up with this, right? right this, so, so I want you to understand they're departing from Scripture here. Twenty. There were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died, leaving no children. The second married, the second one married her, and dying, leaving behind no children. And the third likewise. 
And so all seven left no children. Last of all, the woman died also. In the resurrection, now they get to, they're finally to their question, when they rise again, interesting wording, which one's wife will see, uh, will she be? For all seven had married her. Now, remember the Sadducees' goal is not the truth of the Deuteronomy passage, but to support their rejection of of the resurrection. That's what this passage is about. This passage is about the resurrection. It's not about marriage. It's about our resurrection. That's the context here. Okay? We always look at this verse and go, oh, what does that mean? We'll we'll, we'll take a shot at it here at the end. But the, the passage is about the resurrection. But see, they're not after the truth of it because they reject the resurrection. And so, these verses show their departure from the truth. Now, I think our temptation is we look at passages like this and we try to figure out what our relationship will be like in heaven. We want to be careful of that. There's some hints here, but we don't know. Now, notice, they chose the, they chose the, the number seven. That's, this is not by mistake, <laughs> right? Seven is this emphatic number in the Bible. It often represents completeness, In Matthew, the Matthew account in Matthew 22, they add to all of this, they said, these brothers who are with us. So so they make it as though it's a real case. There's never been a case in history of this many deaths and nobody having a kid and one guy having all, these guys all having the same wife. This is made up to, to bring about their point. So the story is most likely highly fictional and its intention is evil in their desires to trap Jesus. It's a ridiculous enhancement of a biblical law to cause confusion, right? This is what people do who don't believe the Bible. They wanna argue with you, throw things out that are, that are ridiculous in order to try to trap people. Now, the Sadducees go on to express that all seven brothers fulfill the duty of marriage, but all fail to leave a child or a seed, right? Without a child, the Sadducees are manipulating the verse to show that none of them have a claim as her husband in the resurrection, which they don't even believe in, (laughs) right? This is how absurd this is. After all seven brothers have passed away, the woman dies as well, right? So the narrative to trap Jesus is complete. Now they ask a question, verse 23. In the resurrection, which they don't believe in, when they rise again, which they don't believe will happen, which one's wife will she be for all seven have married her? Now, this was the problem. They struggle with the teaching of resurrection. Their question strongly assumes, and I think about this, strongly assumes that, this, that, that she would be the wife of one of the seven in the resurrection, but which one? See, the Sadducees' biggest problem was the assumption, I want you to hear this because this has to do with marriage and eternity and all kinds of things. The Sadducees' biggest problem was the assumption that resurrection life was simply a continuation of life down here, and it is not. We must understand that. We've got to wrestle with that, right? We're going to talk about this. You're going, oh, I want to be married forever. We'll get to that in a minute. Don't start pulling your ring off yet. In other words, all the relationships of earth would just naturally resume in heaven. That's how they think, right? They thought of life in heaven or in the kingdom in terms of of life on the earth. And we do this too, right? We think of the great hunting grounds, you know, as a young boy. 
We, we, we want to bring our earth here, this fallen world, we want to take it into heaven, and it's foolish. It's just absolutely foolish. And today I hope I convince you not to think that way. Now, so they reject the resurrection because they, can't, they could not figure out how all seven brothers could have her as his wife. That's, how, that's why they reject the resurrection. This argument was doubtlessly a point of contention between them and the Pharisees and, and which brother could claim the wife or could, how could each brother have an equal share? This led them to say, this can't be true. This resurrection can't be true. Now, notice when you read this that there is a sense of superiority and a, a very cynical tone as they try to trap Jesus here. However, their question clearly revealed how ridiculous the idea is. That this argument, many, I read a lot of people on this, many of them said it probably started with just two people because that's the way the law talks about. If a brother dies, his, his younger brother should take up his wife and produce a seed for him. That's all the also says. But that wasn't good enough for them. That, the Bible doesn't go far enough, so then they go to this, well, how about three? Well, what about four? You can see the, article, the argument keep going. And so they end up with a ridiculous number. And this is because they mishandle God's word. And here's, here's our warning before I leave this point. Rightly divide God's word or it'll lead you to a place you don't want to be. And that's what happens to these men. There was absolutely poor handling of God's word and it leads them to a place of destruction. <clears throat> Third, pride gives birth to deception and rejects the power of God. Pride gives birth to deception and rejects the power of God. Look at verse 24 with me. Jesus now steps up to the mic and he says to them, is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God? See, here Jesus immediately, he wastes no time, he describes their problem. You have a bad understanding of the scriptures and you don't believe in the power of God. He could have walked away right there. Mic drop, see you later. You don't believe the scriptures, you have a bad interpretation and you don't believe in the power of God. That's a problem today too, friends. There's all kinds of people that go, well, I believe certain parts of the Bible. Come on. Is marriage really just between a man and a woman? You know, Jesus never talked about homosexuality. So, so he can't be supporting the rest of the scripture. So his words are greater than the rest of the Bible. This is what's going on right now. Right now in our church world today. See, this is pride. It leads to deception. And it leads to the rejection of God. Of his power that he can do anything. And I, I don't want you to miss the power of God connected with our eternal state. If you miss that, what you'll do is you'll be like me as a little boy thinking heaven is about earth. It's so much more. Now, this bad understanding and this lack of knowing the power of God is a sharp blow to these Sadducees who were supposed to be the guards of the understanding of the scripture. Notice he uses the word mistaken there in verse 24. It's a well-chosen word, and it's a present passive. So, to help you get your mind around this, it has the idea that you are being led astray, you are, you are wandering away, you are being deceived. 
Now, it's present tense and passive because their troubles have, made, have been brought on by themselves. They have been doing this to themselves. They were deceiving themselves through a false interpretation of the scriptures of Deuteronomy 25. And, and friends, brothers and sisters in this room, people do it all the time. They take a passage of scripture and they twist it and turn it to say what they want it to say or they abuse God's word in bulk and they fall into deception. And, and, it, and, it's, and it's going on constantly. That's why we work so hard to exegete the text right, to teach the text, because that's what it says. And sometimes, like you, I don't like that text because I'm prideful. And I got sin in my life at times, and I don't like it, so, so what do I do with it? Well, we'll just not go when he's on that part of the verses. I'll stay home. <laughs> I can't dodge around them. No, we believe the text, right? We believe the text over our own views. Now, what Jesus is, Jesus is doing here is, is skillful. He's inviting them to examine their selves in order to discover the truth. Notice what he says here in verse 24. Is this not the reason you are mistaken? That you do not understand the scriptures or the power of God. He's inviting them. Well, you want to examine. Well, you want to get to the bottom of this. You need to examine yourself here. And he uses this, what we call a double negative in, in the Greek here. There's a double negative by telling them you don't understand scriptures and you don't know the power of God. You're doubly in trouble. That's what Jesus is telling them. So the problem was they failed to understand the true meaning of God's word. They failed to believe the power of God. And this culminated in a, in a rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, look at the beginning of 25. For when they rise from the dead, stop right there. There is no doubt in Jesus' mind of the resurrection in that passage, is there? Read it again with me. Beginning of verse 25. For when they rise from the dead. He has no doubt there's, there's a resurrection. Not at all. I love the little uh, personal pronoun there, the plural pronoun, they. And, and what this says is he's, Jesus himself is indicating who will be resurrected, who will be justified. Now he leaves the time indefinite. He doesn't tell us a time which, which he himself says the Father knows. But here he says, I know who they are. <laughs> so he, he affirms the resurrection, and he affirms his ability to say, I know who will be justified, who will be resurrected in that day. Now, in order to prove the, that the Pharisees only thought earthly or in earthly terms, notice what he says here about heavenly realities. End of 25. They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Now, Jesus is given, I'll catch this here, Jesus is given a revelation concerning the future life of all true believers, in which the Sadducees were totally ignorant of. Jesus right here is giving some future revelation of our future life. Now it's just a tad tidbit and, and many of us have wrestled with this for many years trying to figure out what that looks like and we all kind of come at the end and go, mm, no, no. <laughs> but there's a few things that we can understand in here that we want to look at briefly. So he says, first of all, they neither marry. Now this is referring to that they do not enter into contract of marriage as husband, right? 
They don't enter in heaven. We don't have the covenant of marriage. That's what he's saying. Marriage is a covenant between a man and a woman, between a man and a woman and God. The covenant, and they give vows to one another, and they enter into a contract, a covenant. So he says that's not going to happen. But then he says, nor are given into marriage. <clears throat> so this is the part where the parents play maybe, right? Um, John and Deborah are going to be married here soon. I know they're somewhere. They're going to walk down this aisle. Their pastor dad, <laughs> Brian's probably going to say, who gives this woman to be married to this man? And somebody is going to say, well, we do. Our family gives. So she's going to come out from the authority of her family, and she's going to go under the headship of her husband. So what we can learn from this is that's not going to take place anymore. The earthly picture of Christ and the church um, seen through marriage, husband and wife, where one comes out comes under, from out from her family, comes under the headship of her husband, is not going to be because we are all going to be under the headship of Christ. In a perfect relationship. So we can, we can see some of that a little bit, right? Though we can't see it all yet. And, and one more thing. I think this is such a clear teaching of the testimony of marriage between husbands and wives. And those who are fighting against us are fools. Because you're going against Christ. The groom who purchased his bride. Don't be so foolish, people, to believe that. And so what a great statement there. So this phrase is particularly important to understand that God's design for marriage was for this life on earth. It's a statement of the gospel. It's a statement of headship on this earth. It's, it's a great teaching that, that every marriage is supposed to represent Christ in the church is supposed to represent the gospel. That's what his statement's about. Problem was, the Sadducees had only thought of the resurrected life in terms of present conditions. So they, like so many, they failed to see God's power can, and think about this, can and will make, make new, a new world, new conditions, a new life. So they don't see that. So they're just going, well, whose wife is she going to be? Because, you know, she's got to be somebody's. Whoa, whoa, whoa. God says, I'm going to give you something that's way beyond that. You just can see earthly things. I'm talking about a new world. One where sin isn't a part of. And the illustration of the gospel is not needed because Christ is there day, day as the burning sun is, and day is always day because he's there. Now, Brothers and sisters, when I come to this passage, this is what I wrote in my note, God has the power to transform the resurrected body to no longer make marriage a necessity in heaven. Mm. I, I, that he has the power to do that. So think about this. The power of the resurrection will change our need for so many things. And in the context here, such as marriage, Sex, family relationships, because we will have a perfect communion with God and everyone else. We have to be careful here. And it's hard, it's hard, it's hard, hard for me. I can't imagine not being married to this woman of 32 years sitting down here. I can't imagine that. But I'm limited, aren't I? But here's what, here's what Gene and I's relationship will be. Perfect. And it ain't yet there, is it, babe? 
So I want to be married. It's going to be better. That's what Hebrews is about. It's a better, a better priest and a better prophet. It's Christ. Everything gets better when we get there. So don't hold on to earthly things. He's trying to teach us that. Got a minute to run to 1 John real quick. 1 John, I just want to look at this verse real quick. 1 John 3. My voice is failing, I'm sorry. But I'm happy and excited. 1 John 3, verse 1. See how great the love the Father has bestowed on us. I don't think we see that all the time. But God, I want it this way when I get to heaven. No, see how great... The love the Father has bestowed, pressed upon us, given us, that we should be called the children of God, and such we are. Now listen to this. For this, world, for, the, for this reason, the world does not know us, Sadducees. They don't know us, because they did not know him. The king of glory is right in front of them, and they don't know him. So everything is about proving their theological point, their superiority. Look, our only hope for eternity is knowing Christ, for knowing God. He goes on to say, beloved, now listen to this, now we are children of God, and it has not appeared as yet what we will be. Question still remains. So those of you who are chasing down, trying to figure out exactly what heaven's gonna be like, this Bible tells us that it's not yet known yet. There's some things we know, we understand a few things, but there's many that we don't, right? That's the question. It has not yet appeared as what we will be. But we do know some things, and this is the most glorious thing to know. Look at the next. But we know that when he, Christ, appears, we will be like him. Oh, that's pretty cool. Is Christ dependent on anybody? So he is not, his life is not based on the need of another. He is self-sufficient, isn't he? He's perfect in all that he does, right? Is he plagued by sin? I mean, we can just go on and on and start figuring some of this out, right? We can start to get an idea a little bit of what heaven will be like. And that relationship with your spouse or spouses, because there's people in this room who have, have lost a spouse who knew the Lord Jesus Christ and have remarried and have another spouse that knows Christ. There's people in this room, I know of you. Your relationship with all of them and me and everyone else and the Lord Jesus Christ and the triune God is gonna be absolutely perfect and not plagued by sin. You will not walk up to somebody and say, you really wore that to church? You didn't say it out loud, but you thought it. Whose child are you? They took my, they took my seat. None of this will be true of us. Everything will be perfect in that relationship. Go back to our text, Matthew chapter, Mark, Mark chapter 12, verse 25. I want to look at the end of this verse throws in this little goodie, but are like angels in heaven. Hmm. Sadducees didn't believe in the angels. That's why Paul brought it up in Acts 23 in that argument, right? <laughs> Got them all fighting. Oh, they didn't believe in angels. See, what Jesus is doing, not 
only is he trying to give us just a little bit of revelation of what life will be like in heaven, but mostly what he is doing is he's exposing their lack of belief in God's word and lack of belief in the power of God to create angelic beings that worship him at any moment, at every moment, and do whatever he pleads. They reject that. And so he throws in that little goodie. It'll be like the angels. They're going, we don't even believe in angels. We're, we're losing this argument. Because of this lack of belief, they were left with a very human view of heaven or the kingdom. But the Bible says like angels. I think that's an amazing statement about our future, though. There's a distinct, I think this tells us there's a distinction between man, mankind, man and women, men and women, and angels will remain. There's a distinction between us. They'll remain there. And there are, are certain qualities that we will gain. We will, we will not become angels. The Bible's clear like that. Again, we will be like angels. So there's a hint there. And the, and the resurrected saints will have a heavenly home like the angels. I, I think that's where the angels reside, right? Isaiah 6, they're there. They're around the throne. We'll be there. So that gives us a, a little bit of view of what heaven will be like. And, and they never suffer death. And, and there'll be more on this in just in a minute. I want to finish this point. But this gives us a little bit of view. But, but pride gives birth to deception. And that's what's happening with these Sadducees. They're self-deceived. They're rejecting the power of God that God can do this. They've lost sight of the truth. And I promise you, friends and brothers and sisters, reject the power of God, reject the word of God, and it'll consume you and you'll never see him. Only as your judge. Four, sufficiency of scripture and our living hope. The sufficiency of scriptures and our living hope. This is fascinating. Look at verse 26 with me. He's gonna take them on right now. But regarding the fact that the dead rise again, you have, have you not read in the book of Moses? So let's stop right there. Regarding the fact, again, there's no doubt with Jesus of the fact of the resurrection, the dead will rise again, right? See, this text was um, not so much about marriage, but it's exposing this sinister plan, this lack of trust in God's word, this lack of belief in the power of God. That's what he's doing. And the Sadducees failed to rightly divide the scriptures. Jesus exposing their error. And again, he says, regarding the fact that the dead will rise. So this is the truth that God wants to set forth. Christ says this is what God's word says. They will rise to a new and living condition of life. I love that thought. We will rise to a new and living condition of life. The old will pass away. Behold, all things will become new. We will be like him. And yet they rejected that. So what does Jesus do? The great exeget, the, best, the greatest preacher that's ever, ever spoken the word of God. What does he do? Look at verse 26. He says, have you not read in the book of Moses? <laughs> this is what they're supposed to be the experts in. And, and, and when he's trying to show the truth, what does he go? He goes to the word of God. This is what you and I should do. Then he says this, in the passage about the burning bush, how God spoke to him saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac in the God of Jacob. Is, he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, you are greatly mistaken. So because the Sadducees denied the resurrection, Jesus draws them into a biblical teaching of Exodus chapter three and four. And this is the scene of the burning bush. This is where Moses is out, wandered around first 40 years. He thought he was somebody. The next 40 years, he thought he was nobody. And that's where God meets him, right? 
And in Exodus, God uses present tense terms here, right? This is a fascinating. God uses present tense terms when he declares himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. Now, he didn't say, think about this, I was the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He didn't say that. And it's so important to understand that because past tense would, would have been appropriate if these men no longer existed. But they do exist. In the Mount of Transfiguration, who shows up there? Moses and Elijah. And I don't think Peter, James, and John actually had a picture of them like, I think it's them. Let's build some tents. There's this there's this understanding. I think it's fascinating. When we get to heaven, you're going to recognize each other. And, and, he, and he brings these guys because he's a God of living. <laughs> Moses and Elijah were alive. And he's not a God of the dead. There's another God of the dead. His name's Satan. He's the father of the dead. And so he shows them, look, Look at how the tense of the word, you great Hebrew scholars. He's talking to these Sadducees who should know this. I am the God. They're not dead. And so he declares himself to be the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And listen to this. He does not receive worship from the dead. That's what he's saying. That's what verse 27 says. I don't receive worship from the dead. They'll be judged. And notice he uses the word mistaken again here. You've wandered away from the truth. Verses all through the scriptures, they pierce themselves with great pains. They have terrifying expectations of judgment. These are people who wander away from the truth. They they went from us because they're never of us. And so they wander away from the truth and they pierce themselves with great grief. And they come under terrible expectations of judgment, Hebrews chapter 10. So rejecting the God of life is a big mistake. And then you end up trying to figure out what the scripture says on your own. I love this, just real quickly. Christ is affirming the authority and the inerrancy of the scriptures. Have you not read? He goes right to the text. Jesus himself said in John chapter 10 that the scriptures cannot be broken. He always shows that he believes in the authority of the scriptures. And finally, just to close this point out, the resurrection gives the believers a great hope and motivation. I love the resurrection. Because of the resurrection, it is indelibly tied to the gospel. Listen to this verse, 1 Corinthians 15, 21 and 22. For since, a man came, for since by a man came death, that's Adam, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. Verse 22. For as in Adam all died. That's, that's depravity, Right? Adam sinned, we sinned with him, we died. We did not have a relationship with God. No, no spiritual pulse. But then it says this, so also in Christ all will be made alive. That's the gospel, right? We're dead in our sins. God grants us faith so we can repent and we stretch out our arms and say, oh God, I'm a sinner, will you save me through the finished work of Jesus Christ? And we may not even be able to word it that way if you're young or, or, or new, to the, new to the church. You just say, I'm a sinner, help me, God. That's, that's God giving you faith to believe. 
because he wants to resurrect you. He's the God of the living. And we understand this through the sufficiency of scriptures and we understand it through the power of God. People go, oh, how is he gonna raise the dead? He's God. He speaks the world into creation. Not gonna be a problem. What about the people eaten by sharks and drowned in the oceans? Not a problem. You're not getting that tent anyway. You're getting a new one. This is what he does. Last thought here, then we gotta wrap it up. A little more practical. The things of earth should grow strangely dim in the light of glory and grace. Have you ever heard the phrase, I'm doing well in the things that count? I'm doing well in the things that count. Someone may ask you, and they say, how are you doing? And there's a phrase that's gone around for many, many years called, said, I'm doing well in the things that count. Some of you use that. I've had a few of you say that to me. Well, that phrase came from a woman named Helen Limmel. She lived till she was 91, or excuse me, 97. She coined that phrase in the latter years of her life as her body began to fail and she struggled. But in 1922, she penned these words, O soul, are you weary and troubled? No light in the darkness to see. There's light for a look at the Savior, a life more abundant and free. You know this. Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full into his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Brothers and sisters, we look too much to this earth. And it distorts our view of the next life. And and it causes us to make decisions down here that are poor, to have anxiety over things. Oh, I want to get married before I go to heaven. I I love those people who want to be married. I think God loves marriage. He designed it. But if that's your only hope on this earth, you're going to distort your view of heaven. God is waiting there for you to be the best husband you could ever be, ever have. Perfect relationship. And yes, God may give you the opportunity to have marriage. Many of us are married. That's the opportunity to display the gospel through our marriage. That's what we do. I think this passage troubles people because we think and act, often act like people who are greatly affected by this life. If you want a glimpse of heaven, look to Christ. Look at who he is. I said earlier, I can't imagine not being married to Gina, but my imagination is tainted by this life. And so I know my relationship with her will be perfect in heaven, because it certainly it is now. It isn't this way now, but it will be. And it's a hope for the future that we'll have those perfect relationships. And I think this passage gives us a little bit of heaven, just a couple things just to think through as you mull over this. I think, one, you can look to the garden from this and go, well, what was, what was marriage like there? Well, I, I think there's even problems in the garden in a sense. Yes, they were perfect, but they had the ability to sin. That was the only time man had free will. It was in the garden. But because of sin, the, the will was corrupted. And that's what Romans says, through just through one man's sin, sin into the world, and death through sin, and all, uh, so desperate to all men because of all sin. And so, so Adam was created with a free will, but it was corrupted by sin. So we don't have free will anymore. People say, well, I believe in free will. Well, can you explain that? 
according to Ephesians chapter 2? Because the Bible says we're dead. Ephesians 4 says we're, we're calloused and cold-hearted. We have a heart of stone. And it just, how are you going to choose out of that? So, yes, you can look to the garden. There's some, there are a few things there that we can get. But the garden teaches us that Adam needed a helpmate and Eve needed to help. They were needy. <laughs> Even before sin. In heaven, I'm not going to need a helpmate. Gina goes, finally. Because <laughs> I'll be perfect and in a perfect relationship with her and a perfect relation with a triune God. See, there were still needs there, even though they hadn't fallen yet. So the garden is a good place to look, but it, but it starts with, here's what I believe, the garden is the start of a, of a full circle, right? God made us in his image and gave us a will to, gave Adam and Eve a will to follow and obey him, but they fell, and man is coming around, and Christ came to the earth to redeem us, and he's bringing us back, and he's changing us. He, he, made, us, he, he made us righteous so we could stand before God at the time of salvation, but he is growing us in the image of Christ, and then one day he's gonna bring us into the glory where we'll be like Christ, and we can't sin anymore. We'll be impeccable like him. That's what he's doing for us, and it's glorious. So I think the garden is just kind of a start as we begin to look at it. And then angels, real quick here, uh, they're the perfect servants of God. So if we're gonna be like them, though we're not gonna be these type of beings, we're probably gonna be like them in the way they worship. Isaiah chapter six, Psalms 103, they're at the beck and call of Christ, they're at the beck and call of God. Whatever God calls them to do, they do instantly. They, they're, they're designed and, and, and only think to worship and, and gratify God's glory. That's all they wanna do. So if there's anything that will be like the angels, it'll be like that. Think about the angels. They're, they're built to serve. They are not heirs. I, I want to be an angel. No, you don't. They're not heirs. They're not sons. They're not going to sit at the table. They don't receive the hope of the resurrection. They don't receive grace. There's either elect angels or fallen angels. There's no in between and there's no justification. There's no grace for a fallen angel. They go to the pit. But like angels, we will never die. And we'll worship like angels. And the fact that God is so infinite and glorious, we'll never tire of him. Never tire of him. And we'll be consumed with him. You've got to understand we're greater than the angels Hebrews chapter 114 says they're ministering saints sent out to river service for the sake of those who will endure, who will elect salvation, in, inherit salvation. Um, 1 Corinthians 6, chapter 3, in light of Christians suing each other, he makes this statement, don't you know we're going to judge angels? So that gives you a little more view of what heaven's going to be like in that. We're somehow going to judge angels. Isn't God so kind? So clearly the Bible teaches us that there's no marriage in heaven. And though our understanding of heavenly home is hard to fully understand, we believe we have a perfect relationship. We will have a perfect relationship with a triune God and with one another. We'll never hurt each other ever again. There'll never be a church split. We'll all worship together. I long for those days. But ultimately we look to Christ. Look to him. The Bible says we will be like him, the one who cannot sin, cannot sin. We won't be him, but we will be like him. 
One last verse just to close this out. I want you to hear this verse. This is the great power of Christ. Philippians chapter three, verse 21, then we'll quit. Speaking of the great power of Christ, who will, listen to this, transform the body of our humble state in conformity with the body of his glory. That's just the first half of the verse. Christ will transform Scott's body of our, this humble estate, this fallen thing that still has problems and deals with pneumonia and all the things that I've been wrestling with. He's gonna transform that into the conformity with the body of his glory. This is what Pastor Roy just underwent. So many other loving people we love so much that have died and knew Jesus Christ was saved. This is what they've gone under. They've now received this body. And listen to this. By the exertion, excuse me, by the exertion of what? Of the power that he has been given to subject all things to himself. This is what the Sadducees rejected. They rejected the scriptures and they rejected the power of God. And in the end, they die an eternal death. Father, thank you for reminding us of this truth. What a passage, Lord. What a passage of arrogant men who stood before the living word, who used the written word to rebuke them. And yet their hearts hardened and they went away. Lord, I pray that you would cause us as a church, Riverbend Community Church, to be wholly dedicated to the proper, accurate, rightly dividing of the word of God. Lord, rebuke us if we get astray. We've got to cut this thing right, Lord. We can't cut it so that it favors one group and not another. We've got to rightly divide it, Lord, so please keep us there, Lord particularly the men that handle the word of God, Lord. Help us, give us a passion to get it right. And Lord, help us not forget the power of God when we look at this world and our troubles and our struggles, even our marriages that struggle from time to time, or maybe a lot of time. May we not forget the power of God that he can transform all this. May the resurrection give us hope and strength to stay in the battle right now, Lord. Lord, there's some in this room that want to quit. Don't let them, Lord. Let them see your power. Let them see your word. Give them the strength to run the race and finish it, Lord. Lord, they'll know they're saved because you've strengthened them to run, Lord. May we not reject the power of God. Lord, we long, we long to be with you in heaven. Maranatha, Lord, come soon. Come soon. Gather your body together and cause us to be in your existence forever, Lord. We give you praise for all the things that were said and done here today. In Jesus' name, amen.